Hello, welcome to the book of Jude. Today I'm going to prove to you that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. How in the world could we prove that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead? Are we just so bound by faith, or is there evidence in the Bible and extra-biblical material that could prove this? Number one, death by crucifixion. It is a well-established fact that Jesus died by crucifixion in the early 30s. There is no doubt among most scholars that this in fact happened in history. It is also a believable fact that Jesus was buried in a known tomb. Most scholars agree that according to the Gospels, uh, he was buried in the tomb that was lent to him uh, by Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Joseph was a member of the Jewish court. Now, this gives us an exact location to where Jesus was buried. Now, this is sufficient evidence because the disciples could have not have claimed that Jesus' body was not present after the resurrection if they have not confidently known where the location of the tomb was. So this brings us to number three, the empty tomb. On Resurrection Sunday, the women found the tomb empty first, followed by Peter and John. But I want to point out that this story starts with the women. If you would tell a lie or make up some type of fictional story or conspiracy that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you would have not have used women as the first witnesses at this time. They were not held in very high regard during this period of time, and this would not have been your first option. So in lieu of that, it almost helps this story as evidence that the women were the first ones to find it, and so this must be true. So this actually helps move forward the credibility of the stories in the Gospels. Now, an empty tomb does not prove the resurrection yet, but let's move forward. The post-mortem appearances of Jesus. So, as we continue to read the story, we see that Jesus had 12 appearances over a 40-day period. It's very important to understand this is not a spirit nor a ghost or anything of that nature. This is an embodied person. Jesus returns from the dead as a person. He takes up space. You can hear him. You can touch him. To counter this claim, many have said these were hallucinations, but I really don't believe 12 different times over a 40-day period, all of those people, different people, had the same hallucination. Uh, one of a resurrected Jesus whom they could see, hear, and touch. Go and see the character of the disciples when Jesus was taken by the mob. I mean, they were scared. They fled for their lives. I mean, no one was even there. They, they were uh, uh, denying Jesus. They were fleeing. And then we can see after, when Jesus appeared to them, their manner changes. Jesus makes his appearances and then ascends to heaven, but he says the Holy Spirit is coming. After they receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they are on fire. They are going out and, and making disciples. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're preaching the good news, the gospel, even though at times they are flogged, they're imprisoned, and they ultimately give their lives. They would not do this if this was a conspiracy, a lie of sorts, if this was a hallucination that they could not prove. If any of this was not true, we would not see the disciples going to death for Jesus Christ. So for me, the evidence is clear. Jesus did exist in history. He was crucified. There was an empty tomb. They knew the location of the tomb. They saw that it was empty. The women seen it first. They ran to the disciples. After his death, they, he appeared to them in body form, and he empowered them to preach the good news, which is the gospel. Hello and welcome back to the book of Jude. Hey, has anyone ever asked you to describe or explain to them the Holy Trinity? The word Trinity is not in the Bible. So if someone comes to you that's outside of the church, a non-believer, and says, explain this to me. So this could be very difficult for a Christian to explain the Holy Trinity. Uh, it's very easy for us to say we believe in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what I'm told at church. That's what my parents told me when I was younger. And they explained it to you in a childlike way. They talked about uh, hard-boiled eggs or water, vapor, ice, all of these things. But nothing really explains in detail uh the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me give you uh, the best way I know how to explain it. The Holy Trinity is this. Equal in nature, the Holy Spirit is equal in nature, the Son is equal in nature, and the Father is equally, they're all equally God, okay? They're all equal deity, all right? And they're one and the same. They have that I-thou relationship. Basically, Jesus would tell us, whatever I say, that's because the Father said it. We're in agreement. Picture it as a married couple, and I go purchase a vehicle, and my wife is not with me. Now, I'm not going to come and say, I'm here to purchase a vehicle. What I say is, we purchased the vehicle, right? When I tell people, we purchased a new home. We purchased a new vehicle. It's because my wife and I have that I-thou relationship. Whatever she says to our children, I'm backing it up. So my children know not to come to me after they get told no from their mother. Same thing. They all have that I-thou relationship and they're all equally God. Now, number two is they're separate in persons. This is what makes them distinct from one another. Okay, to be a person, you have to have will, emotion, and intellect. Now, the third, some people get uh, tripped up on this. The third thing, they are uh, submissive in duties. Now, what do I mean by that? We see that the Father has sent the Son. You know, the most popular verse in the Bible for uh, John three sixteen. Uh, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. And we also see that Jesus talking about the father and the son sends the Holy Spirit. There you have it. So if someone asks you to explain the Trinity, you very happily say, yes, I do know how. Uh, they're equal in nature, they're separate in persons, and they're submissive in duties. And that is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see them throughout Scripture. And we see them at one time at the baptism of Jesus. The Father is speaking. The Holy Spirit is descending. And Jesus is getting baptized.
Hey friends, if you enjoy listening to the Book of Jude podcast, share it with your friends and let them know that they can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts for the Android, and many other places. Hello everybody, once again, welcome to the Book of Jude. Thank you for your support. Hey, I wanted to share something with you in the Book of Hebrews. Uh, just turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, we'll go to verse 4. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to his son. So the author of Hebrews is already given the distinction uh, that God in the past has spoken through angels and prophets. But right now, he's setting Jesus up, setting him apart from angels, making him greater, and of course, setting him apart from uh, humans as well, okay? So, in these last days, verse 2, he's spoken, used by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds, or he made the universe. Uh, this goes back to John 1.1. This goes back to uh, Genesis 1.1, okay? Jesus has always existed uh, when he became the uh, son of Joseph and Mary uh, that was when he came and, and the word became flesh but that wasn't when he started uh, existing he's always existed verse 3 who being the brightest of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things the world the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins uh, down to the right hand of God. Now that's verse 3. The author just told us that uh, Jesus is set apart and if you wanted to see the Father, if you want to see his character, his image, his brightness, his gloriness, we need to look at Christ. And verse 4, having become so much better than the angels as he, Christ, has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Uh, we have been challenged uh, quite a bit if Jesus was not just a mere prophet, if Jesus maybe never existed. Uh, but the fact is he existed and he wasn't just the prophet. He was greater than the prophets. He's greater than angels. And, and if we want to know what the Father is like, and Jesus told his disciples this, look at me. You want to see the Father? Look at me. He said that in the book of John. So Jesus is the second person in the Trinity. Jesus is God. The Word became flesh. Philippians 2, 6 to 8. Jesus Christ emptying himself, taking the form of a human, becoming a slave for us, for humanity. Now, we're just going to scratch the surface today, give you a good understanding of what this these verses mean. But if you want to go deeper, you can absolutely can. There's many sources out there. You can go deep sea diving with this verse and what it means to you and me and the rest of humanity. But right now, I want to draw your attention to becoming a slave because your version, your version, go grab your Bible, press pause, Go grab your Bible and open it to Philippians 2, 6 to 8, and you will see after he empties himself, he takes the form of a, what does your Bible say? Because most of them say servant. So correctly translated, it's doulos, and that is slave. There is many words for servant, which is probably in your Bible, it says servant. There are many uh, nuances for that word, but there is only one translation, one definition for slave, and that's doulos. There is only one Bible 
That is correct in doing this. This is the very old Edgar J. Goodspeed Bible. He correctly, now we're talking 130 to 150 times, I can't remember, slave doulos is correctly interpreted slave as it's supposed to be. You'll see things like I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He actually is saying I am a slave to Christ. Now you need to know that if you're saved, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Leave everything behind. Follow me. Keep your eyes on me. So if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are in fact what the Bible correctly calls a slave for Christ. He is your master. You are the slave. He bought you with his blood. Amen. Now, let's get back to the verse. So a good question that comes up with these particular verses is what is the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, we have the Holy Trinity. And the Holy Trinity is best explained equal in nature, separate in persons, submissive in duties. They are all equal in nature. They are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equally God. Separate in persons, personality, a will, and intellect. And submissive in duties, well, the Father sends the Son to the world, and the Father and the Son sends the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? He yields to the Father's will, and he yields to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's power. So when Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Word became flesh, came on earth, so when our Savior came to earth, he decided to yield his will to the Father and his power to the Spirit. Now, why is that important? You can see all throughout the Gospels, specifically in John, uh, Jesus says the Son doesn't do anything on his own accord, the Son doesn't speak on his own, he does whatever the Father tells him. This is him yielding his will. He does what the Father says. When he's praying in the garden before that faithful night, he says, not my will, but yours, Father. He yields his will. He emptied himself of that. And then we move on to him yielding his power to the Holy Spirit. Now, how does Jesus yield his power to the Holy Spirit? Well, in Matthew 26, 53, he says, I could call down 12 legions of angels to save me, but I won't. You understand that 12 legions, a Roman legion is about 6,000, and he's talking about 12, that's 12 times 6, that's 72,000 angels. And do you know, in Kings, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And Jesus just said, I could call, if I wanted to, use my power and call down 72,000 angels, but I won't, because he yields up his power. In Matthew 12, the Pharisees said that Jesus performs all these miracles by the help of Beelzebub, or the evil one. And what does Jesus call them on? Blaspheming against who? The source of the power? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus is giving credit to where credit is due. His power source comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. He empowered Jesus to preach. He empowered Jesus at his baptism. Uh, he was there. We heard the Father's voice. We saw the presence of the Holy Spirit, and we knew that Jesus was standing in the Jordan with John the Baptist. And more importantly, possibly than all that, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is what Paul was talking about in Philippians 2, 6 to 8. At the day of Pentecost, what does Jesus say? When the Holy Spirit comes, he will speak of 
mean? Now the ministry of the Holy Spirit is pointing us to Christ. The ministry has changed. Amen. In the source of his humiliation, Christ pointed to the Holy Spirit as his source of power. And now in his exaltation, the Holy Spirit comes to point us to Christ. Our Lord Jesus humbled himself, emptied himself to come and be the perfect example, the sacrificial lamb for us, dying on the cross, shedding his blood, buying us. He is my master. I am his slave. He has forgiven me of all my sins. He is the only good thing inside of me. So all praise to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in nature as our triune God. <music>